This morning, as we get together, I, uh, we've been talking about how, how should we live in Babylon, uh, which to catch you up means how should we live um, when we're living somewhere when things are not as they should be. Um, how can we live in a place that is, uh, we've talked about it a lot, but the already and not yet. Like we believe that Jesus' work on the cross was sufficient for us and redeems, restores, reconciles us, reconciles us back to God. But we also see an experience in the world that things are broken. So what do, we, what do we do in this already but not yet? Like we're waiting for the ultimate rest, for the restoration of all things. Um, and we've talked about a lot of different ways as we walk through Daniel. Daniel being uh, living in exile during this time. And uh, the thing I want to focus on today is holiness. Now, holiness is a difficult topic, but I want to set it up like this, okay? Um, In the chapel household, chapel, like remove uh, one step further. Mom and dad are here today. If if you haven't met them yet, please do. Marla and Gary, the unofficial Connection Church members, uh, they're helping me install a floor this weekend. Mom was hanging out with the boys Dad, help me install the floor. Mom didn't do any flooring. Um, But if you grew up in our household, there was something that happened on birthdays uh, that uh, is forever burned in my memory. And there was this plate that we had, and it was called the Special Plate, which is a really unique name. (laughs) The Special Plate. Now, let me tell you what was different about this plate. It was special. Okay? Okay. It was special because on our birthday, it was just, it's like a little bit thicker than a normal plate. I don't know what brand it was. It had, it's again, burned into my memory because on the outside perimeter, it had like apple in the middle of it. And then the outside perimeter, it had different stages of an apple being eaten. And so there's like a whole apple and then a bite of an apple and then all the way around to an apple core. And this plate was special. And it was set aside to be special. And it was set apart in our house to be special. This plate was so special because the only time that I got to use this plate in all of my 18 years of being in that household was on February 7th, my birthday. Any other February 7th birthday people? No? Okay, just checking. We could be birthday buddies. Uh, but on February 7th, mom made a big meal, and we, and we, uh, we got to pull out the plate it wasn't just for me. All my siblings got to do it on their birthday. I only cared about the February 7th one, though. Uh, but we pulled it out, and I got to eat dinner on this special plate. Now, if you looked at it, there wasn't inherently anything special about the plate. Like it had the apple thing, but all of our other plates had, like, they were designs on them, too. Kind of beat into the, the ceramic or whatever. There wasn't inherently anything special. It wasn't, like, gold-plated, or, but it was a special plate. Why was it special? It was special because it was set apart from the rest of the plates. It was special because our family had at one point in time said, uh, we're going to set this apart, we're going to make this different, and we're going to make a big deal about this. Okay, so I want to dig into what it it means to be holy because I think we're starting, again, we're going to talk about this at the end, but holiness is an abstract theological concept that is is difficult for us to wrestle down because uh, we don't experience holy things necessarily in the world always. Like, that's not, that's not commonplace in our experience. Um, but I, I, want us to, I want us to dig in a little bit because I think the idea of holiness really sets the trajectory for how, uh, or for who God is, and then that sets the trajectory for then how then should we live. Um, so Daniel 5, 
Uh, what we have is King Belshazzar. Um, there's a little bit of back and forth between historians of whether he's right after King Nebuchadnezzar or um, a few after, but either way you slice it, he comes after King Nebuchadnezzar, who we talked about last week. We read about he was uh, made to go a little bit crazy, ate like an ox, um, all because he didn't submit himself to God's sovereignty. And uh, we, we step into the scene, and he's throwing a party. Now, this is a royal party. Uh, he's the king, so this would have been elaborate. It would have been beautiful. It would have been expensive. Now, the thing that we need to pause and recognize is where and why and when he's throwing a party. Because later on, this is a spoiler, things do not end well for King Belshazzar. Uh, in fact, it ends so well that the night of this party, he's overtaken by the Medes, and he's killed, and his, kingdom, and his kingship and kingdom and life ends right there. But he's throwing a party. Now, this probably wasn't a party that he was completely, obli- like the, the attack on the outside. There were no drone strikes in ancient Babylon. There's no, like, it's hard to sneak attack and then overtake a fortified city. And so uh, King Belshazzar is there in his palace, Sur- the city surrounded by the Medes. And he sits on his throne and he says, I am so great, let me throw a party. And whatever the reason, there's a lot of reasons. He could have been oblivious, he could have been so haughty or prideful. Whatever the reason is, it's, it's super obvious that the king has a really high view of himself, which I think gives us a lesson about teachability. This isn't like... I keep telling you guys, I'm giving you stuff for free, uh, and I'm giving away too much free stuff. Maybe we need to slow down a little bit on it. But uh, I think there's a lesson here about teachability, because think about the kings that had come before him. Uh, Like, literally, one of the kings before him, because he thought so much of himself, he was made to run around and graze the fields and uh, eat grass like an ox, because he he thought he was so great and God was nothing. And uh, King Belshazzar is in a very similar situation surrounded, getting ready to go to battle, throwing this elaborate party, going, I must be something pretty special. Like, what are they going to do to me? And so uh, he, he think about how far he's fallen from where King Nebuchadnezzar ended the last chapter. In Daniel uh, 4.37, it says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. And King Belshazzar was un- unwilling to heed, uh, to heed that lesson that I'm sure was, like, if a king goes crazy, that's not something that a kingdom forgets lightly. Like, that's not something that a, that a kingdom is like, oh, that was weird, and then just moves on from it. Like, that's something that's told over and over and over again, because that's a memorable story. That's a really important story if your leader kind of goes off the rails. And King Belshazzar was unwilling, unwilling to heed that. And so it's my plea to you this morning is just don't waste your lessons, okay? The, the, the lessons that God is teaching you, don't waste those. Submit to the process of spiritual formation that the Holy Spirit's doing inside of you. The lessons that God has taught your parents, don't waste those. Submit to the process of spiritual formation that the Holy Spirit's doing inside of you. When we see other people go through things, don't waste those lessons. God is collectively teaching us something as his body. And, and I just, I don't want us to waste hard things that we go through because we can, be, we can look more like Jesus on the other side of it. So, chapter 5, verse 2. 
having this big party, thinking they're kings of the world, nothing can ever touch them. And it says, well, Belshazzar was drinking his wine. He gave orders to bring the gold and silver goblets uh, that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem. So the kings and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. Now, where did these goblets come from? If you'll journey all the way back with me to chapter 1, and you'll remember all the way back with me uh, to when Sam preached about like the, the Israelites getting taken into captivity. It says in chapter 1, verse 2, And the Lord delivered uh, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, so Israel, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. And these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put the treasure in, his, in the house of his God. So King Belshazzar in chapter 5 is throwing this big elaborate party, thinking he's king of the world. And he goes, I think at one point we took some, some goblets, some like cups, that were really important to Israel. And I think at some point we stuck them away in a, in a warehouse somewhere, and like we should get those out. We should get those out, and like we're drinking wine. Let's just pour the wine in those fancy cups and make this an even better party. And so he orders someone to go get them. And uh, these are, the very, again, the very, the very cups that, uh, that were taken away from Nebuchadnezzar at when they first came into exile. Which begs the question, why is this such a big deal? Like, why is it being noted here that the king went and got these special cups and wanted to drink out of these special cups? Because... I have cups in my house, and some of them are plastic cups, some of them are glass cups, some of them are children's cups. I don't think if Belshazzar was alive today and throwing an elaborate party, I don't think God would get angry if he said, go to Jordan and Amanda's house and go to the cabinet next to the sink and grab me some of those cups so that we can drink our wine from them. I don't think God would get angry at that. And so why, we're going to see what, what God does as a, as a result for uh, Belshazzar's decision, but why is God so angered by this like brute force of, of strength and the showiness of Belshazzar? Because they're just cups, right? But I think if you pause and you dig a little bit deeper, they are cups that, are, that were used in the temple, that were taken if you dig a little bit deeper than that, if they're, if they're used in the temple, that would mean that at some point God had given instructions to make or fashion these cups. <clears throat> and if you dig a, a little bit deeper than that, if God had given instructions to make or use or form or fashion these cups and had set them aside for worship, that means that they're holy. And if you dig a little bit deeper than that, holiness isn't just some word that means like, morally better because an inanimate object can't be morally better. It's just a cup. But I think this really uh, big reaction from the God of the universe that we're about to see is because it's tipping his hat to the fact that holiness, God's holiness, is not something that we should be taking lightly. See, we try and understand it with our human and our finite minds, but it's difficult to comprehend. And our thought is, well, okay, he set these cups aside. He set these goblets aside. What makes him so inherently special? Why is, why is he so great? I mean, yeah, he's God, but what makes him so holy? 
So we're in the scene. Belshazzar's doing all these wonky things. And in the middle of the party, says, Scripture says a, a hand appears and starts to write on the wall. And it confounds absolutely everybody in attendance. Now imagine, just for the sake of the story, okay? Imagine you have had, probably because you're at a royal party, a few too many. Okay? You've had a few too many, and all of a sudden, uh, a hand appears and starts writing on the wall. I can't put myself in those shoes. But I would probably be losing my mind. Like, oh no, I have really gone overboard uh, because, because I am starting to see an, an inanimate hand right on the wall. And then everyone starts to talk together and they realize like, oh no, every, you're seeing this hand too. It's not just me. Did somebody put something in this wine? What's going on here? And they begin to talk and it, and it, they, it says their face were like white as ghosts, just completely air sucked out of the room. The party's over. What's going on here? And so they're all like, uh, uh, okay, what do we do? What does it mean? It's some sort of mystic uh, writing on the wall, and they can't figure it out. And so they, what they do every time that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream or there was something weird that went on, they went and they ran out, and they're like, find the wise men, find the magi, find the fortune tellers, find the magicians, find anybody you can who, who can interpret this for us because we're wigged out. Everyone shows up, and they go, Yeah, I don't know, king. I don't know what that's supposed to mean. And then it says the queen mother comes in. And the queen, uh, queen mother could have been just like probably not the mother of the king. Just probably a, a lady in the kingdom who had a lot of influence, a lot of authority. People really respected her. And she remembers the Israelites. And, and she's seen, because she's an older woman, she's seen what God has done in the past for dream interpretation or that sort of thing. And she says to King Belshazzar, there is a man in your kingdom, this tickles me, who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Now, for those of us, I know a group of churchy people who this explanation would make their skin crawl. Like she looks at Daniel's life and goes, I don't know him personally, but, she, but he's got the spirit of the holy gods, S, in him. Begins to make you like, no, he's, there's, only, there's only one God, Queen Mother. I don't know how to explain this to you. And we, we want to kind of clean up her theology a little bit. Uh, but what stands out to me the most is that when, when the crisis came, when people had lost their minds, faces white as ghosts, Freaked out, what is happening? God, uh, someone is trying to communicate with us. What stood out to this, this queen, this woman that had a lot of respect, a lot of, had a lot of authority, was there's someone, there's someone in this kingdom that is like, I don't understand it fully. I don't understand all of the thing that's happening with them. But there's someone in the kingdom uh, that has insight and intelligence and wisdom. Like there's someone that has ordered and structured their life in a way that, that has stood out to me in the past. And I have said this before, and I will continue to beat this drum for us as a gathering. 
the way forward for us living in Babylon, living in a place of exile, in a place that's not our forever home, the way forward for us is to be a people who are faithful to what God has called us to do. Obedience and faithfulness is the only marker of what we have been called to do as God's people. We have not been called. We have not been called to be the loudest people in the room. We have not been called to be the most protesty people in the room. We have not been called to be ones who are always screaming, my rights, my rights, my, uh, you're, you're, you're persecuting me, which is a, a whole aside and a complete joke. And, and you don't understand what it's like to live. No, the, nowhere in Scripture do we see that modeled. But what we see consistently modeled in God's Word is people of faithful and quiet obedience. People who said, yeah, I'm going to do what God asked me to do. And I'm, I'm just going to plot along faithfully. And I'm going, to be, uh, I'm going to be someone that God has called me to be. And I'm going, to, I'm going to share my faith with others. And I'm going to, I don't need to be loud and boisterous. I don't need to be brazen. I don't need to be, uh, I don't need to uh, wave my white flag. I'm just going to do what God's called me to do. And yeah, there might be consequences. We talked about that. Jordan talked about the consequences of, of getting thrown in the furnace. But nowhere did you see those people going, no, you don't understand. You're taking away my rights. You shouldn't, make me, you shouldn't have to make me worship like this. They just said, well, like, listen, throw us in the fire. If you do, God will save us. If he doesn't, he's still good. A quiet, marked, faithful obedience is the way forward for us as God's people. Think about this, and Jesus says in Matthew, he says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and gives light to everyone in the house. So we're talking about everyone around us seeing, everyone around us seeing the light that's in our lives. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven, so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Meaning, here's what I think Jesus is saying, when people look at how you live your life, that is the greatest testimony that we have to evangelize a hurting and broken world. When people look at your life, when people look at the way that you conduct yourselves, when, when people look at the way that we carry ourselves, when people look at the way that we interact in love with our neighbors, when people look at how our lives are lived, they should be able to look at us and go, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is, but you are just different. You are just different than the rest of the world that I interact with. For some reason, when I go to work, people are hateful and mean and accusatory, but you are just like a breath of fresh air. You don't gossip. You don't, you don't, uh, you don't get worried. You just seem to can't be shaken. You have peace. You have joy, even when you walk through hard times. And I think this is what the queen was saying about Daniel. Like, I don't get it. Her theology wasn't all buttoned up and pretty. I don't understand it. But when she looked at Daniel, she said, something is different about him. Something is different about Daniel. And I think this is the invitation that God is extending to us this morning. 
That when our lives are looked at, there is something that is markedly and noticeably different. And what is that difference? It is faithful obedience and faithfulness to the way of Jesus. And I promise you, I promise you, I promise you. I don't know if I've said it, but I promise you. In the world that we live in, it's nasty, it's ugly, it's hard backstabbing, there's gossip, there's all of these things, you will look different following the way of Jesus. And not different, and people might make fun of you, but I think at the end of the day, people are going to look at you and go, there's something about that. Because it's different than our world. People who are marked by grace, extending grace to one another. People who are offering love that is just unconditional. Just going, no, I just, I love you. I love you. There's no, I love you, but I don't like to say, I just, I, I love you. People who make their communities, Babylon, a better place to live. People who are contributors to society. People who are like actively building and establishing and helping and growing and being uh, tangible parts of their community. Like I said, people who are faithful, quiet, obedient people to the way of Jesus. Now, I'm not provocating, don't ever share your faith with people. I don't think for a minute that the only way that God's kingdom is extended is just like, we'll just do our thing and hope people notice. Because I think that noticing then leads to good conversations. Those good conversations then lead to kingdom expansion. That kingdom expansion uh, leads to us being faithful to what God has called us to do. I think there is some uh, somewhere in in the realm of conversation that will be helpful for this. But I think it starts with faithful obedience. Not loud, not showy, faithful obedience to the way of Jesus. And this, brothers and sisters, is what holiness is. Holiness is being different. Holiness is being set apart. Holiness is being uh, other than. Holiness is uh, is being different than the world around you. So Daniel comes in, the queen, the queen goes, gets him, he comes in and he offers his insight into the situation. And what we read from our scripture today, he begins by reminding him of what the kings before him had gone through to learn what it meant to humble themselves. It says, but instead you, Belshazzar, his son, son of King Nebuchadnezzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this, instead you have set yourself up, set yourself up as Lord against heaven. You had the goblet from his temple brought to you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drink from them. You praise the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which you cannot see, hear, or understand, but you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Now this chapter ends with King Belshazzar uh, hearing his final judgment. He's written on the wall, and his final judgment comes in, in four words. It goes, mene, mene, tekel, peres. Okay? Mene, mene, tekel, peres. And when Daniel starts to interpret these, you'll see him, he kind of line-eyed them, interprets them for them. And he says, God has numbered your days, King Belshazzar. God has numbered your days, and your reign as king will be brought to an end. And then he says, you have been weighed on the scales of, of justice and holiness and all of these things, and you have been found wanting. Like you left, you really left something to be desires, be desired. 
And then uh, your kingdom will be divided up to the Medes and the Persians. Like, how insulting is that? Of like, hey, someone's not going to then come right after you and take this big empire that you built. But no, it's going to get split and divided up, and it's, it's going to be a joke from here on out. In the midst of Babylon, in the midst of, of exile, in the midst of living in 2022, it can be really, really easy for us to forsake the ways of God, forsake the ways of Jesus. It can be easy for, easy for us to forget holiness because we are surrounded by things that don't seem or feel very holy. When you go to work, it might not feel terribly holy. Our friend groups don't always feel holy. Our families, got a five and a three-year-old, don't always feel very holy. In fact, sometimes you, those are the areas that feel the least holy. I see the, the least God-honoring stuff come out of me. I see, I see sin nature in my boys. All of it. And you just go, where is the holiness? And so as, because of this, because we're not surrounded by holiness, it's really easy for us to forget that the maker of all of it is holy. He's set apart. He's different. And if we want to make the same mistake as King Belshazzar, to go, hey, bring me the cups, this is whatever. If we want to completely forego God's holiness, we can just waltz through life pretending that everything is fine. Sooner or later, though, we will have to, you have to, come face to face with God's holiness. Whether that be a moment in time here on this side of eternity or at the beginning of the next side of eternity. At some point, you come face to face with God's holiness. Now, holiness, I don't think, is meant to be a frightening thing. I don't think it's meant to be a scary thing because as base level, we've talked about this, holiness just means like different than or set apart or other than. And believe me, I am entirely grateful that we are describing God as holy and God is different than the things that I see in the world. I'm, I'm praising him for that, that like there's more to the things than I see than just this. <clears throat> but I hear their arguments. I hear them all the time. I hear the hypothetical ones from you now because we so often define holiness as a certain quantity of morality, like I, because in 2022, the phrase I hear most often connected to holiness is, let's kind of have a holier-than-thou sort of mentality. What's behind that? When someone says they have a holier-than-thou mentality, typically what it means is they, they're on the moral high road. They think they're better than me because they do or don't do certain things. So God is holy. I want to make the argument. God is holy not because he does or doesn't do certain things. Okay? God is set up as this picture of holiness not because he, he abstains from bad things and pursues good things. But instead, I think the reality is that because God is holy as a state of being, because he is different than or because he is set apart, 
out of that holiness then overflows the, the, the morality, if you want to. But the thing that comes first is the holiness because that is a part of who God is. And holiness is a, is a really dangerous thing for us to come in contact with. King Belshazzar learned this. King Belshazzar learned that, that holiness was a dangerous thing because he, he fooled around with God's holiness, forgot about it, wasn't well, not in reverence or awe did he go get these goblets and say, let's use these as an act of worship. Instead, he was like, let's just like profane them by partying and worshiping these other gods with them. See, a lot of times, uh, we, because we're defining our, our definition of holiness by morality or goods or bads or that sort of thing, uh, a lot of times we think about it like this. We either are or aren't holy because of the things we do. For example... I am a notoriously messy eater, okay? Notoriously messy eater in the sense that my shirts have a very short life cycle, very short, uh, and my family needs to own stock in spray and wash because we would send that thing to the moon. Holy cow. It would just be like we use it so much, I use it so much. I'm the messy one. Me and my watermelon-eating three-year-old. But when barbecue sauce drips from my sandwich onto my shirt, my shirt is dirty, like definably. There's a spot on it. If I'm out on, on my grill, though, and I'm in an ideal situation, I have the time and the energy and the patience to use charcoal. And, and the grill's hot, and I'm slathering barbecue sauce on a chicken thigh. And I flip it over, and some drops off the chicken thigh and lands on the coal. Does that coal become dirty? No. The barbecue sauce become, becomes consumed. We would never look at that coal and be like, oh, that coal's dirty now. And that's how it is with God's holiness. That's how it is with God's holiness. It's not not we are stained and therefore wrong, but we have to be careful how we enter into God's presence because God is holy, and holiness is a good thing because it means set apart. It means different then, uh, but at the same time, it's a dangerous thing. One of my favorite lines in uh, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is uh, the, the kids are just learning about Aslan for the first time, who's supposed to, like, represent... From C.S. Lewis's perspective, like a God-like, Jesus-like persona, okay? And, and someone goes like, oh, this Aslan, he's this lion, he's ferocious. And they're like, is he safe? Is Aslan safe? And the response is brilliant. He says, no, he's not safe, but he's good. He's not safe, but he's good. And this is where our lives intersect with God's holiness, That God is holy. God is completely other than, completely set apart, completely different than. But he's also good. We're told in Scripture that we're able to be, through the blood of Jesus, we're able to boldly go into God's throne room of grace. And that's what we're encountering. We're encountering an all-good, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, compassionate, just, and altogether different experience. Than we, than we experience out in the world. We're encountering all of that when we encounter God. But we have to be careful with it. Scripture says that, the, that God is an all-consuming fire. 
that it's a good thing, but it's a dangerous thing. And so we need to, we need to make sure we're structuring ourselves and we're, we're entering into God's presence, which is everywhere, with caution and, and reverence and an understanding of who he is. But on the same note, we're able to do it boldly because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. I talked about at the beginning how theological concepts are sometimes difficult for us to then take all down, down Liberty and Townway and go our separate ways and go into our, our day-to-day lives and apply because it's like, well, there's this abstract theological concept that I can't put my hands around fully because I keep using the words like other than and different than the world, and those aren't concrete terms. And it's tough for us to take abstract theological concepts and then apply them in our everyday lives. But I'm going to do the best I can to give us a couple options I don't think they're options like it's pick or choose. A couple ways, though, that we can go and apply and live out God's holiness and, and walk into God's holiness. And the first one is that we just got to remember that holiness, God being holy, God being completely other than and different than and completely, uh, completely in a different direction than what we see in our world is that God's holiness draws us into worship of him. We worship God, in fact, because he is different or other. If there was 100,000 gods like him, he wouldn't be worthy of our worship, our adoration, our affection, our attention. But because he, the very reason he is worthy of worship is because he is different. And so we worship God because he is different, because he's holy. And this, friends, is the very thing that you and I were created for, is worship. This is why my heartbeat is we sat down in this room a couple weeks ago. Last, I don't remember when it was. But we sat down in this room, and we looked at pictures on a screen, and we worshiped through doing that. And it was difficult, and it was different, but I'm so proud of you guys because you guys really engaged in that process. And this is why I'm wanting to cultivate in our hearts this attitude of worship because we can worship standing and singing and raising hands and closing eyes and doing all of those things. But we can also worship by giving God the best at work, by giving God the best of what we have while parenting, by, by Nathan Lynch picking weeds in the garden, tending to the earth. That's a, that's a worshipful act if you're doing it to honor and glorify God. And we ought to. We ought to worship because God is holy. He's holy. Worship is our very purpose. And then, and then secondly, we're supposed to embody God's holiness and go be a part of restoring and healing and reconciling a broken world. Like, we're supposed to, to go be the light because God is holy. First <clears throat> uh, Peter chapter 1 says, Therefore, with minds alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, this is from the Old Testament, be holy because I am holy. Again, not as you go into the world, be better than other people because I'm better than you. Not as you go into the world, uh, be, be just snooty over people because I'm snooty over you. No, but be holy because God is holy. 
This is the thing that we talked about. We talked about it from the verse in Matthew. Let your light shine so that when people see your life, they'll praise your Father in heaven. This is the thing that we're being invited into, is that we're, we're able to go into a hurting and broken world, and we're able to be light in the darkness, just as Jesus was light entering into the darkness of the world. And we're able to then reconcile and restore and redeem, and with the power of the Holy Spirit, take wholeness into brokenness. We're able to be holy, the quiet, faithful, obedient Jesus followers that we've been asked to be. We're able to be those things uh, because of God, and I promise you this will get noticed. And sometimes that's a really hard thing to like, okay, what do, I, what do I do? What do I do? And here's what I want you to do to go be holy and be a part of the process of, of reconciliation and restoration. Think back through either the previous week or this next week, think back through, uh, go into this next week with the mind of what are the things that you mention or notice or talk about with your spouse or kids or friends that drive you bonkers in our world? Like, what are the things that uh, we've all said it? Jeez, oh, someone should do something about that. That's a problem. And I wish that someone would just, would just do something because there's some brokenness there. And here's the invitation that Jesus is extending to us. As a holy people set apart to be God's ministers of reconciliation for all the world, here's the invitation. Take your holiness as you follow God, your set-apartness, your other-thanness, your different-thanness, and then into those broken and desperate and hurting situations, we get to enter as God's holy people into a broken, hurting, dark Babylon of a world and we get, to, we get to be holy there. And guess what happens when holiness invades unholiness? Those unholy things begin to take deep breaths and they begin to come to life and they begin to be restored and redeemed and reconciled and broken things begin to be made whole. And all of a sudden, you, you, it's not a problem you're complaining about anymore, but it's a community that you're involved in. And you look back and you recognize God's holiness being instituted throughout it. God is holy and invites us into a worship of that holiness because he's totally different. And God is holy and invites us to then embody that holiness for a desperate world, a desperate world. And we have the ability to, to be holy because of Jesus' work on the cross. And that's God just has to always be on the forefront of our minds. Because of Jesus' work on the cross, we can be holy.